Thank you guys so much. Hey, can we, uh, uh, yeah. can we say to each other, let's go to Japan. <laughs> can you do that? All right. I think if we all go, then what Bo said, the number could triple missionaries in Japan. Amen? Amen. Wow. Uh, thank you guys so much. Um, it's really good to, to have you guys with us. Um, it's, it's good for our hearts, um, yeah, to really feel um, a little bit more of God's heart um, for Japan and for people, for the world in general. Um, please, please do um, spend some time talking with, with Bo and Jessica with love. Um, and it's a great opportunity to hear. Um, we, need, we need more interactions with, uh, with folks who are uh, living in, in glad obedience to the call of God. So, um, yeah, let's do that. Uh, you can read this in the insert of your bulletin, but uh, I spent a few days in, in New York last week. And on Thursday night, uh, it was about <clears throat> 7.30 at night. I was at JFK Airport waiting to come home. It had been a long week of meetings and uh, doing stuff for, for a gathering that I was at and, and then meeting up with, with, with different folks. And uh, by the time it, it was time for me to come back home, uh, I was pretty beat. I was tired. I was ready to come home. I was ready to see Olive and the kids, ready to sleep in my own bed and, and ready to just, uh, yeah, just get back to life here. And as I was sitting at my gate at the Delta, uh, in the Delta area, uh, the gate agent got on the intercom and said, we are completely overbooked, right? completely overbooked in this flight, and we're looking for four people to get off this plane <laughs> and to get on the next flight. And if that next flight was later that night, I would have considered, but they said the next flight is not until tomorrow morning. And they said, um, we're completely over, overbooked. We, we sold, you know, we sold out. And so we're looking for four people, looking for four people. And every five minutes or so, they went on the intercom and they made that same announcement. Apparently nobody was, was going. Uh, and they said, we're looking for four volunteers to get on the next flight to Orlando and we will give an $800 American Express gift card or Delta travel credit for anyone who's willing to give up their seat to get on the next flight tomorrow morning. I was like, dude, $800 in American Express gift card, that's pretty good. So I texted Olive. I said, yo, can I come home tomorrow for $800? But she didn't respond, so I was like, nah. You know, like, on, it's all one-sided text, right? <laughs> I said, nah, I actually want to come home now. <laughs> but, but really, that was my heart, though. Not my heart, my body. My heart and my body just wanted to be home. I think that was the heart and the mindset of almost everybody on that plane because they kept on making that announcement, $800 American Express gift card or travel credit on Delta to come home on the next flight tomorrow, and nobody wanted to move. In my heart, it was, uh, I'm sure not everyone obviously was going home. Some people were coming to the happiest place on earth. But the reality was we were either flying home or flying to the happiest place on earth. That's the great majority of people. And as I was thinking about it, I said, no, 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 I just want to come home. I just want to be home. I want to be home now. I want to be home, and I don't want anyone to bother me. I don't want to inconvenience myself. I'm ready to get home. And so I did, and as I got on the plane, I thought about it. And I said, I'm completely entitled to sitting on that plane, right? I bought that plane ticket. I was ready to go. I had my itinerary. And I was thinking about it. I thought, well, there are four people who also just as badly wanted to get home. There were four people who just as badly wanted to get to the happiest place on earth. And I thought, how much of it is my responsibility? How much should I care that there are people who are waiting to get home just as much as I am? How much of that matters to me? How much of that should matter to me? Should it matter to me? Or is it, hey, I'm on my way home. That's all that matters. I've paid. I got everything set. I'm ready to go. I'm comfortable. I don't need to give up my space for somebody else. And then I began to think about that at a spiritual level. I know that I'm on my way home. I know I'm on my way to the happiest place, not on earth, but in all of creation. I'm on my way to that place. And there are people who I know, their deepest desire is just to get home. They're tired. They're weary. They're pilgrims in this life. They just want to get home. They just want to find rest. They just want to be in a place that they can call home where there's no more problems, no more trouble, no more craziness of life. They just want to get home also. 
And the question I ask myself is, am I willing to inconvenience myself, to change my plans, to change the direction of my life in order that I can help some people get home spiritually? And should that matter to people like you and people like me? Does that matter to people like you and to people like me? Because that was the very heartbeat of our Savior Jesus. Jesus willingly discomforted himself and he came into this world in order that people who did not know the way home could encounter him, who he said of himself, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And again, the question that I have to ask myself is, do I really believe that enough that I would be willing to make changes in my life in order that not only could I make it home, but that I could lead other people and help other people to find that same home? Because that was a heartbeat of Jesus, and he calls us to have that same heart in us. One of the ways that the Bible talks about this is he calls it harvesting. There is a harvest field that is abundant with people who are ready to come home, who are ready to be saved, who are ready to come to encounter the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he says, the harvest is plentiful, but it's the workers that are few. We looked into that passage last week in Luke chapter 10. I want to look into Luke chapter 10 again today, but I want to go beyond where we looked last week. We looked last week at the heart of a harvester from verses 1 through 4, but I want to go beyond that and see how do we respond to Jesus' call to be a worker in the harvest field. Should that matter to us? Does that matter to us? Is that only for people like Bo and Jessica? Or is it for people, is it for people like you and me who consider ourselves to be ordinary Christians? Right? Not the souped-up version, not the limited edition, but the baseline model of a follower of Jesus. Does it matter to us that Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. What does that mean? We're going to look at Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. This is God's word. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them two by two ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. He told them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Go! I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't take a purse or bag or sandals. Don't greet anyone on the road. But when you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around from house to house. When you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what's set before you. Heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. When you enter a town and are not welcomed, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that sticks to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yet be sure of this, the kingdom of God is near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. This is God's word. What do we see about Jesus' heart for the harvest? What do we see about his call to you and to me? Two thoughts, and again, um, I risk insulting your intelligence here, so at the risk of sounding overly simplistic, just I'm going to give you this thought, and then I'm going to flesh it out. But the first thought is this. The reality is that the harvest is plentiful, and the workers are few. Uh, Jesus said this here, the harvest is plentiful, verse 2, but the workers are few. I'm saying these two realities are twin realities. Jesus could have also said, and the harvest is few, but in order to press upon us the urgency, he says, but the workers are few. I, I want to kind of frame this in, in, in helping us to see that these, both of these realities are true, and unless we see that they're both true, it's not going to put a fire within you could, have, you could have a heart that is enlightened, but you need sometimes a fire in our pants to get us to go and to live in obedience to the call of God. And unless we see both of these things, we won't sense that urgency and sense that call within our own hearts. That's the first thought. First thing is this, the reality, the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few. And both of these need to be fused into one and we have to understand both of them. <clears throat> I was um, doing some work at McDonald's some, maybe a couple years ago. Uh, and I went into McDonald's because they have this nice uh, cafe called the Mick Cafe. And I was sitting there at my nice cushioned seat. Uh, and I walked in. And uh, knowing that I, I am a bad patron to simply go in and use their Wi-Fi, 
I ordered an iced coffee. So I ordered an iced coffee, I got my receipt, got my number, and I sat down, opened up my computer, and I just started uh, looking at some emails or doing some work. And, and as I was sitting there, I, I realized, you know, sometimes you kind of get into the zone and start doing work, and then you forget that time has passed. So I had I'd been doing a little work, and about a minute or two had passed, and um, I realized I hadn't gotten my iced coffee yet. So I waited a little bit longer, and about five minutes, seven minutes passed, and I realized I still hadn't gotten my iced coffee. So I thought, wow, must be really busy. And I looked around, and there was like maybe two or three other people in the McDonald's. And I said, well, then certainly they're short-staffed today. Maybe someone called in sick or someone didn't call in sick, and they've got a shortage of workers. And I looked back there, and it looked like there were plenty of people back there who were able to make me my iced coffee. The girl who took my order was talking to another girl, and they were talking about something, 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 something. They were young teenage, well, not young, but they were teenage girls, and they were blabbing about something or other. One of them was looking at her fingernails, and they were saying, oh, you silly girl, and, and talking with each other. And I, I, I said to myself, well, one of them could probably go and make my iced coffee for me, even though there's all those other people. And, and I looked at my receipt, and I realized that now nine minutes had gone by from the time I ordered my iced coffee. And so I walked up to them with my receipt, and I said, I uh, ordered an iced coffee. I still haven't gotten my iced coffee yet. And they're like, oh, we didn't get your iced coffee yet. Oh, we, we, oh, we didn't get, go get him his iced coffee. And so they kind of uh, told each other to get the iced coffee. And finally, after about 10 or 11 minutes, I got my iced coffee, and I sat down, and I started drinking. And I said, that was really strange, because it would be an issue if there were not enough workers back there, but the problem was not that there weren't enough workers. There were plenty of workers. The problem was that the workers were not working. The problem is that the workers were not working. If that ever has bothered you when you go to McDonald's or you go to wherever it is that you go, they're people who can do the job. And if they had been doing their job, then we wouldn't have to wait so long that you understand the burden of Jesus here. You understand that the same thing is true when it comes to the gospel. As distant lands and foreign nations wait for the gospel to come to them, they say, surely there must not be enough workers, but then they hear about all of the people who populate churches, and they say, well, the issue is not then that the workers are few, Maybe it's that the workers are simply not doing the work. What is it that causes you to feel like it's not my responsibility to heed the call of Jesus to go into the harvest? Hey, I'll send my money. I'll send. I'll pray. Can I tell you? Can I remind you what a pastor named Piper says? He says, unless you're willing to go, then you ain't qualified to send. Right? Don't tell me I'm gonna, this is what I'm going to do. Hey, you know what? I'm just going <clears> to <throat> live out my faith by simply doing lifestyle evangelism. I'm just going to live my life. Preach the gospel always. Use words if necessary, St. Francis of Assisi says. And so we say, yeah, that's what I'm doing. I'm preaching the gospel all the time. Can I ask you how many people have come to know Jesus through that kind of witness? And I'm not saying that's wrong. We need to do that. But a lot of times we give these as reasons why we don't share the hope of Christ with people in need. And we use that as a cop-out to say, you know what, I'm doing it my own way. Thank you very much. Without really heeding the call of Jesus to enter into the harvest field. Why is it that we don't go into the harvest? If we really, be if we really believe <clears throat> that Jesus Christ is the only hope for salvation then why is it that we're so reticent to go and so hes hesitant to tell people about the hope of Christ? I don't know what it is for you. There's a bunch of different reasons that uh, in the first service I, I read some things that our harvester said. I'm not going to talk about that now. But I think at the, heart, at the heart of it, sometimes we just don't believe the reality that the harvest really is plentiful and that the workers really are few. What do I mean by that? I don't know if you, in, uh, in, in middle school or high school, you ever had to take health class. Anyone have to take health class? Not, not just health class, but you had to take CPR class. Anyone have to do CPR class? Okay. Um, I asked that at the morning service, and a lot of our young people hadn't had to do it. Maybe this is like something that only older people had to do. Um, that stinks because even young people are going to need CPR. But I remember in CPR class, they would teach us the steps to doing CPR, and they would use this dummy... And mine was called CPR Manny. Did you guys, who used CPR Manny? 
Okay, CPR Manny, short for mannequin, right? So it was, this, it was uh, the, the um, top half of a man's body, and he was jacked, like he was ripped, kind of like some of you. So he was like that, and it was this plastic thing, and his, his, his what is this area, would go up and down, so when you do these chest compressions. So I remember in a CPR class, we would all, uh, CPR Manny, we'd have a bunch of alcohol because we had to wipe his mouth because we had to do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation on him. And the first step we do, the first step we'd have to always ask is we'd tap his shoulder and say, are you okay? And obviously CPR Manny is not going to respond to us, so we assume that he's not okay. The second thing we had to do is we had to call 911, right? We had to say, actually we couldn't call because we didn't have cell phones back then in health class in 1994. So instead of us busting out our cell phone, we had to say, someone call 911. Someone had, we had to tell someone to call 911, but the way we had to do it, was, do you remember how you had to do it? You had to point to someone. You <laughs> call 911. You call 911. Because if we said someone call 911 and we started doing chest compressions, nobody would call 911. Why? Because they thought somebody else would call 911. It's called diffusion of responsibility. And here's what psychology says. The more people who hear that cry, the less you think that cry applies to you. The more people who hear, the more you think somebody else is going to respond to that call. And so we think when Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, he really means a few billion people. He doesn't mean me. He doesn't really mean like few, few. Jesus was always talking hyperbolically. He was talking about a camel going through the eye of a needle. He was saying there's only two. That's how Jesus is talking. He doesn't really mean that. That's what we say, right? It's not really few. It means a few compared to many. But there's a lot of people. Don't you see? Jessica has gone. Bo will go. There are other people who will go. That's not on me. A lot of times that's what we think because we don't really believe Jesus, when he says the workers are few. Maybe it's, it's even more basic than that. Let's just, let's just rewind a little bit. In Matthew's gospel, it says when Jesus looks at the crowds, it says he has compassion on them. He suffers with them. He has compassion on them because he sees them harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Maybe our challenge is that we're not seeing what Jesus sees. Remember how the way Jesus looked at people was different from the way we oftentimes see people. When Jesus, so the, the, he said, <clears throat> listen, Peter, upon you, I'm going to build my church. <laughs> I'm going to build my church. Like every church from here on out, they're going to get their blueprint from, from you. Peter, from you. Like, we are going to get our cue from someone like Peter. When everyone else looked at Peter, they said, that guy, that guy's a goofball. He's this Galilean, big-haired, goofy fisherman who can't do anything. He can't even talk right. He denied Jesus three times. He's not going to do anything. But Jesus says, no, upon him, he's going to be a rock. And upon him and people who make the same confession that he did, I'm going to build my church. Because Jesus saw people differently than the rest of the world does. When we look at crowds of people, we, I walked into our prayer meeting room about 10, 15 minutes before our prayer meeting, and there was a sister in there, and I was like, what are you looking at? As she looked out the window, she said, I'm looking at people. And she said, people are interesting, and people are funny. I wonder what we see when we look at people, because when Jesus looks at people, he doesn't just see people dressed nicely. He doesn't just see people with a good education. He doesn't see people with a lot or a little bit of money. He looks at them, and he has compassion on them. He sees that they're broken. They're sheep without a shepherd. They're tormented. They're helpless. They're alone. They're unsupported. And Jesus sees that. That's what we sing. We say, Lord, show me. Open up my eyes to see. Fill me with your heart and then lead me in your love to those around me. Because if we, didn't be, if we weren't led by the eyes and the, and the leadership of Jesus, we wouldn't go to those people. We wouldn't go to people because we don't see them the way that Jesus does. And maybe that's why, that's why we don't respond to this call. Because we don't have that suffer with compassion for the crowds that Jesus does. Do you see them the way that Jesus does at school? Do you see that 
the, the people in your workplace, the people in your, in your, in your neighborhood publics and pharmacies and the people that you work with, you see them the way that Jesus does. Maybe you have seen that. And at one point you were moved with compassion for them. Maybe your heart broke for that friend at school who was obviously not married but was pregnant with a child and you begin to pray for them and you begin to have a heart for them. But the more you engage with the brokenness of the world, you stop being moved with compassion. That's easy to do today. This is a a new phenomenon that psychologists are talking about. It's called compassion fatigue. The more you hear about the brokenness, I I felt this way, man. When When I hear about unarmed person being shot by somebody, when I hear about school shootings, when I hear about mass uh, mass uh, murders. Isn't there, but where you hear these and, 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 and something pops up on your Twitter feed, something pops up on, on, on Facebook or, or wherever it is, and the first thought is, man, this happened again. Not again. And your second thought is, how long, oh Lord? How long until you come back? Aren't there times where you said to yourself, man, you know what? I'm just tired. I'm just tired of grieving. I'm just tired of hearing all of this stuff that happens in our world. You have this sense of compassion fatigue. That you're just tired. You have no more tears to cry anymore. Maybe for some of us, that's the reason why we don't go because we just feel like, man, it's just too much. There's just too much of a need out there. The refugee crisis, the, 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 the immigration crisis, the needs in, amongst the unreached people, it's just too much and we don't know where to begin, that we just feel like it's overwhelming. Maybe that's some of us. I think that's a lot of us. But if I think we're honest with ourselves, I think a lot of the reason is not simply because we feel that the workers are few. I think deep in our hearts, guys, I don't think we believe that the harvest really is plentiful. We believe that there are massive fields I don't think we really believe that the fields are white unto harvest, that if we were to go, that there would be people that God has ready for us to harvest their souls, for us to to, to bring the gospel and that they would believe. I think we don't believe that. That's why we get afraid. That's why we get scared. That's why we think the relationship matters more and not rocking the boat matters more than me bringing the hope of eternal glory into their lives. I don't believe we believe deep in our heart of hearts that the harvest really is plentiful that we're sitting on a gold mine wherever God sends us to go. You know, it's like when I think about this, I think about Jonah. You know Jonah, that wayward prophet? He believed that Nineveh was a great city, but he didn't care. He didn't believe that the harvest was really... All it took, okay, all it, he, he was the worst preacher that the world has known. You read the message that he didn't say, if you repent then the mercy of God will come. He just said, 40 days or burn. That's all he said. What kind of a message devoid of grace and mercy is that? 40 days and Nineveh will burn. That was his message. No compassion, no love. But what happened? As soon as he preached, repentance, sackcloth and ashes, and all of Nineveh, the most wicked city and the most wicked nation, experienced revival. It's almost as if God was saying, hey, God, no, Jonah, listen, I could use anybody, but I just want you to see and feel my heart and believe this for a second. I could use anybody. I'm just asking if you would go. I have poured gasoline on their hearts, and they're ready to burn like fire. If you would be a match that's sent into that mission field, would you go, Jonah? The harvest is plentiful, and I could use anybody. I'm just asking you to go to be a match that burns, and bam, the entire city will experience revival. I think of Samaria, the Samaritan woman at a well, five times jacked up, five times ditched by the man she thought would give her love, and she's living with another man who's not her husband right now. Promiscuous. Nobody will give her the time of day anymore. Nobody will give her welcome. 
In fact, the women of the village shun her. That's why she's at the village well at the hottest time of the day because nobody wants to be around her and she doesn't want to be around anybody. And so there she is, but Jesus encounters her and he gives her the living water that she needs and she goes and all she does is, listen, could this be the Messiah? Look and see a man and she shares her testimony, which everybody knew already because she was the town. Everyone gossiped about her. They knew about her, but she said, Jesus changed my life. And she goes to this town and they come and they experience a revival. Nobody would have believed it. Nobody would have expected it. But all she said was, I've experienced the grace of God, and i got to go. I've got to go, and I've got to tell them about the one who came and gave me hope. And so she went, and the village was revived. And the reason why we don't go is because I think we don't believe that the harvest really is plentiful. Because we think there are a bunch of people, but nobody's going to believe in this message. No one's going to believe me if I tell them about Jesus. We don't believe that the harvest is plentiful. But what if we took Jesus at his word? What if we believed him? What he said, at your workplace, there are people who are waiting for someone to bring the hope of the gospel. What if you believed at your school, at UCF, at Seminole, at Valencia? What if you believed that at your middle school, at your high school, that there are people who are waiting to hear the gospel? Let me ask you, how do you know that the harvest is not plentiful? How many times have you reaped, tried to reap the harvest recently? Because we don't know if we don't go. And he can't show if we don't go. And we won't see unless we take that step of faith. Here's this ever simple reality that Jesus brings us face to face with here this morning. The reality, guys, is that the harvest is plentiful. The reality is that the workers are few. And he's asking if we would see that. And if we do, the second thing is that harvesters not only see the reality, but we do something about it. We not only see, but we do something about it. I don't know if you've ever been to a carnival and you've seen these carnival games. And there's one game in particular um, that our kids like to play because it's this game where there's rubber ducks kind of going around in a circle on water. And you pick any duck you want, and you pick it up, and on the bottom, something will tell you if you want a big prize or not. And the thing about that game is that every player wins, and they advertise that. Every player wins. So you might pick up a duck and say, oh, my gosh, I got this massive SpongeBob SquarePants Stuffed animal, I hit the jackpot, and you win that. Other times you pick it up, sorry, but you get to keep this duck. Like, ah, you know what, I got, I, I, at least I didn't walk home with nothing. I got something because every player wins. But you can't win if you don't play. Jesus is saying the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few, and as long as you get in the game, you win something. The mother load that somebody could come to the saving knowledge of Jesus. And who knows, they could be a Samaritan woman. They could be a Jonah who goes to a little town, goes to a great city, and brings revival. Maybe it's just, hey, that person, they accept Jesus, and then a week later they die. They go to heaven. That's your prize. Maybe your prize is they rejected me, but Jesus said, blessed are you when they persecute you and insult you in my name, for great is your reward in heaven. You still win. <laughs> you still win. Even if they say, no, thank you. I don't want to hear you. I don't want to hear what you have to say. You still win the prize of the smile of God because you took a step of obedient faith. Is that not worth it to get into the game and to play? But a lot of times we think, you know what, I would play, but I don't know how to play. <laughs> I don't know how to do it. Well, Jesus here gives us three things, very simply, that all of us can do. I'm almost positive that all of us can do it. So I want to break it down uh, to a very simple level. Three things that we can give, three things we can do. We can give our presence, we can give our prayers, and we can give our proclamation, our words. Okay, very simple. You could do at least two of these three, three things right now to anybody. First thing it says here, verse 5, when you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you. For the worker deserves his wages. Do not move around. 
from house to house. Here's what Jesus is saying. Here's the first thing. You go into someone's house and you just live with them. You hang out with them. You give the gift of your presence. I just poo-pooed on that a little bit earlier saying, hey, some of you say uh, relational evangelism is my style of evangelism. No, that's cool. That's great. It's incomplete and insufficient if that's all that we do. But we have to begin at least with that by giving your presence in the life of somebody. As you live with somebody, Jesus is saying as you live with them, you're spending time with them. You're showing them a different ethic. You're showing them the life of Christ. If they're mourning, you mourn with them. If they're rejoicing, you rejoice with them in order that they might see Christ in you, the hope of glory. Can you give your presence to somebody today? <clears throat> I was walking to school with Elijah, who's six, and Manny, who's nine. I was walking to school with them this week, and as we were walking down the sidewalk to the school, they pointed me to a bench, a newly painted blue bench at their, uh, in their playground, and they said, Daddy, that's the buddy bench. <laughs> I said, what's the buddy bench? They said, oh, it's new. It's this new thing for this anti-bullying, they didn't say anti-bullying campaign, but um, <laughs> If you're playing at recess and you don't have friends, you go and you sit on the buddy bench. And if people see someone at the buddy bench, then they can come and they can sit with you at the buddy bench. So as I'm walking to school with them, I said, Manny, Elijah, um, would you guys ever go sit at the buddy bench? And Manny said, yeah, I would sit at the buddy bench if one day my friends at school didn't come and I was at recess, and I didn't have my friends there, I would sit on the buddy bench. And Elijah said, Manny, that's impossible. You, that will never happen because you have so many friends. <laughs> that's what he said. He started scolding her. And she said, but if, I, if they didn't come, I would go there. And, and Elijah said, yeah, I would go there too if my friends didn't come to school. And I don't know why he talked like that, but I said, <laughs> I said, would you go to somebody? Like, would you, would you go if someone was sitting at the buddy bench? Would you go and would you sit with them? And they said, yeah, we would go and sit with them because everybody needs a buddy sometimes. Everyone needs someone just to be their friend, and sometimes their friends might not be there that day. I wonder if the entire world is a buddy bench. And people are living there, and they're just waiting for somebody to just give their presence. Would you come and just sit with me? This world that is so transient, this world where I see so much of this stuff that's broken, would you come and sit with me and show me a countercultural ethic that gives me a reason to believe that there could be something better? Could you sit with me? Could you give me the gift of your time and of your presence? would just be with me. Aren't there people that you know coming to mind right now? Lord, would you reveal those people to us now? In your love, lead me in your love to those around me that I would give the gift of my presence. It's the first thing, but we don't stop there. The second thing, we give the gift of our prayers. Jesus says in verse, <clears throat> in verse 8, when you enter a town, you're welcome to eat what's set before you. Verse 9, heal the sick who are there. Tell them the kingdom of God is near you. Right? These disciples aren't just going to go and say, in the name of John or in the name of Paul, in the name of Sean, in the name of Eugene, be healed. They're praying for these people. And when they see these miracles come, the reality of the kingdom of God is being brought to bear in the lives of these people. See, Jesus' miracles weren't just, hey, you know what? I'm going to show, watch this. I'm going to make these chairs fly up into the air. And chairs fly and they come back. He never did stuff like that. He didn't say, oh, look, there's this brother here. He has no hair. I'm going to make hair grow. Watch, bam, and hair grows. He didn't do stuff like that. Jesus' miracles were not just like these demonstrations of power for people to say, wow, would you do it again? He didn't do that. All of his miracles that Jesus did, the kingdom is near. All of his miracles were signs of the way that the world is going to be when Jesus comes in all of his glory. This is the way that the world ought to be. So sick people are healed because in my kingdom, there's no more sickness. Mourning mothers and fathers and sons and daughters will mourn no more because the dead are raised to life. In my kingdom, there's no more dying. There's no more crying. There's no mourning. There's no more sickness. There's no more death. There's no more hungry people. So Jesus feeds 5,000 people with just a few pieces of bread and some fish. And Jesus does all of that in order that they would see a picture of what the kingdom of God is like. And they say, man, that's what I want. 
That's what I want. And so when we today go and we share life with people, house church, SNF, whatever it is, Saturday Night Fellowship for our young people, and you share life with people and you walk with them, I haven't met many non-Christians and I, where I'll, I'll, I'll hear from them about some struggle that they're going through and I'll ask them if I can pray for them. I haven't met non, many non-Christians who say, no, I don't want you to pray for me. They may say, yeah, I don't want you to pray for me right here, right now, but yeah, please do pray for me. And when unbelievers come into your house churches and they hear prayers being answered, of sick people being healed, of jobs, uh, jobs being, 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 being provided, of financial situations, of whatever it is, they begin to think maybe their God can do that in my life also. We used to do this when uh, we used to go out to um, places to eat. And we would sit down at a, at a restaurant as the server would bring us food. And before we would pray together, we would ask the server and we'd say, hey, we're about to, to say our grace. We're about to pray. Is there any way we can pray for you today? And we just pray for them. This is pre-evangelistic sometimes. If you've got a, a, a church card, we give it to them and say, hey, why don't you come to our church or why don't you come to a house church? But I remember one time this, this lady, um, and, and she was, you know, you can't tell by looking at them, but she was um, probably in her mid to late 20s, um, very engaging, was, con- you know, she was talking with her. She's a, she was a wonderful server. And as we asked if we could pray for her, um, she kind of knelt down, uh, kind of uh, bent her knees and got down and put her elbows on the table. And she's like, yeah, you know what? I'm working all these long hours because uh, she had two kids and her baby daddy just walked out on them. And she said, I just really need God's help in my life right now. Really need God's help in my life right now. And so we prayed for her. And um, I don't know where the rest of the story goes. right? But I hope someone would come after her and they would, embody the presence of God and that they would proclaim the gospel to her. But we give our presence and we give our prayers. This is huge. These are two things that you could do right now to anybody. You could go to Target today. You could go to a cafe today. And you could, you could do that to anybody, your friends. <clears throat> the third thing, and maybe where we get a little bit hung up, is the third thing is the proclamation. We give our proclamation. Uh, verse 9, it says, heal the sick who are there and tell them the kingdom of God is near you. Okay, shorthand, this is the gospel. The kingdom has come because the king has come to bring us back to him. It's the proclamation of the gospel. We can live out a gospel ethic. We can pray for people, but at the end of the day, there is no other name under heaven and on earth by which we're saved besides the name of Jesus. And so we have to proclaim. Maybe your proclamation is, hey, I'm going to invite them to church. That's fine. I'm going to invite them to becoming a child of God class. Uh, I know some people have invited their friends who don't believe, but they're curious. Hey, can you come to this Becoming a Child of God class? And if they're part of a house church, these house church members from 1230 until 145 as this class is being, uh, is being presented, as the gospel is being presented from 1230 to 145, these house church members are fasting that day and they're praying that these people would hear the gospel and they would respond in saving faith. But we have to learn how to proclaim the gospel to people, to lead people into a saving relationship with Jesus. That's why we have people come up. When you become a member, you can become baptized or confirmed. You come up here and you give a testimony. Why? Because as a child of God, you need to be able to help people to come to know the hope of Christ. You need to be able to share your story. You need to be able to articulate that story. You need to be able to share the gospel with somebody. We don't bring people up here just so that we can kill time, that we can have a service for long. No, we do it because you need to be ready. 1 Peter 3.15, when someone asks you, why do you have that hope? You always need to be prepared to give an answer to anybody who asks you to give a reason for the hope that you have. Because here's the thing, you never know when you give your proclamation, your presence, your prayers, whatever it is, when you give these things, you never know whether you're reaping a harvest or sowing into the harvest field. What does that mean? It means you and I are part of something so much bigger than our own comfort right now. The reason, see, Jessica and Bo have been in Japan where less than 1%, okay, less than 1% of their entire nation are Bible-believing Christians, bow the knee to Jesus. Less than 1%. And yet when they talk about the fact that more and more missionaries are going, 
the fact that more and more people are coming to the saving knowledge of Jesus. What does that mean? It means that somebody way before us has been fertilizing the ground of Japan with their prayers, with their evangelistic efforts, with the planting of churches, with their tears, so that today there might be a harvest that is plentiful. And in order for these words to be true in the future, we need to be sowing into the ground of the hearts of people, whether it be in America, whether it be in Thailand, whether it be in Myanmar, whether it be in, in Japan, whether it be in China, wherever it is. So that these words of Jesus might be true. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. That's why you go and you ask somebody like Gonzalo Kimbuco in, in Ecuador. When we went for the first time in 2009, there was nothing. Barely a believer that we could call on. But now we go back nine years later. This will be the 10th year that we go back. And we see in these distant corners of the Amazon region, churches are starting up. People that, when we went to Sinangue, when we went to Cabeno, when we went to uh, Dashino, these people wouldn't give us a time of day. They kicked us out of their towns. But now there's a thriving population of believers because he understood that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And God, if you would send me, then I would go and I would plant where I need to plant and I would harvest where I need to harvest because this is our reality in our day and in our time because we're part of something so much bigger. And every time we go, when we pray, we preach, we go, we give, whatever it is that we do, we're sowing into something and we're helping that others might harvest something else. That's why the first missionaries who went to Africa went in their coffins. Their clothes were packed, their toothbrushes were packed in their coffins, not in suitcases, because they know when I go, I'm not coming back alive. But they were willing to labor and lay down their lives in order that today, a the church is, we might talk about America being a post-Christian nation, but the church is thriving in places like Africa, thriving in places like Latin America where people labored in hard soil, frozen tundra until now finally a harvest could be reaped. And right now maybe as they labor in a 1%, less than 1% Christian nation in Japan, as they pour out their labors, they may never see the fruit of it. But the question is, can you understand that whether you are reaping right now or you're sowing for the future, you never lose when you give yourself to the gospel. You never lose. You're guaranteed to win as long as you get in the game. And so you ask people, you ask people, is it worth it? Was it worth it? First missionaries, and they were Presbyterian missionaries from our denomination, Presbyterian missionaries who went into Korea and they labored and they labored and they were killed before they ever saw a single convert in the late 1800s, only to see in the year 1906 or so, this massive revival break forth, not in South Korea, but in Pyongyang, North Korea, the greatest revival that has ever been known in the motherland of Korea. Because people are willing to lay down their lives and till that soil. You ask them, in glory now, was it worth it? Do you believe that it was worth it? Was it worth it for you to lay down your life though you never saw any fruit? Was it worth it to never see a single person put their hope in Jesus Christ? They look at the Korean diaspora all around the world, people like you and me, people who, even if you're not Korean, you have benefited from this Korean race. And they would say, if I had a th every breath Every breath, every breath, you are worthy of it all. Because we don't give our lives in order to see a harvest. We give our lives in order to obey Jesus. Because he's worth it. Because 2,000 years ago, Jesus maybe was asked that same question. He was asked that question by Satan indirectly when he was tempted. Jesus, don't go to the cross. Bow down, worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. And he had to answer that question, is it worth it for me to go to a cross to be nailed? On the cross, a criminal next to him said, Jesus, why don't you just save yourself and save us if you're really the son of God? Because Jesus knew. He knew that if he were to save himself, he could not save the others. If he were to save himself, he could not save us. Because there's only two options. A kernel of wheat remains alive. It remains a single seed. But a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies. Then it produces many seeds. 
Jesus is that kernel of wheat that fell to the ground and died so that we might have life. And because we've received this infinite grace that you and I are safe because of nothing that we've done, we didn't deserve heaven, we didn't deserve any of this, but simply because of grace. You did nothing to earn that. Would you go and would you give that free grace to others who are dying to know the hope of the gospel? Would you be that kernel of wheat that helps people, that shows people the reality of the gospel in Christ? Up in New York this week, uh, after my meetings were done at night, and after the conference was over, I spent time meeting up with different harvesters. And the last person I met um, was a brother named Victor. Some of you may know Victor Huang. He grew up in our youth ministry, went to UF, and is now a doctor in New York. And we'd been trying, we, we had tried to meet up, and uh, he was working late shifts, and so we couldn't meet up. And, and then the last, uh, the last day uh, before I was going to leave, I had about 20 minutes um, at my hotel before I left. And, and he said, I'll, I'll, I'll leave after my shift and I'll come. And he took a train and, and he met me. So we had about 20 minutes to sit and talk. And, and we talked and, and we shared and we caught up on life. And then he said, um, hey, how are you getting to the airport? I said, oh, uh, I'll probably either Uber or take a subway or something like that. And so he looked up on his, on his phone. He said, this is rush hour. So to Uber, it's going to be $90 to get to, to JFK. And I said, that's a lot of money. <laughs> and then he said, uh, let, me, let me look and see how you can take the subway, and so um, he, he looked it up on his phone, and he's like, all right, let me make sure, and so he walked to the concierge, and he asked her, he said, hey, my friend is trying to get to the airport, uh, JFK, can you, can you tell me how to get there, and so she said, take, get on the subway station about three blocks away, uh, hop on the E-train uptown Jamaica, get off at the next to last stop, you got to switch trains and get on the air train, and, and then they'll take you to JFK, and so got that direction, and he's like, hey, uh, Pastor DL, you got to go to the E-train. Um, no, the subway system is kind of crazy, but uh, there's one about three blocks away. I was like, all right, cool, man. And I, you know, I gave him a hug. And I said, all right, thanks, man. He's like, no, I'm going to, I'll walk with you to the, to the uh, subway station. I was like, you have to get on this subway too? He's like, no, I got to catch a bus. Uh, my bus is going the other way, but uh, I just want to make sure that you, that you get there okay. And so he, we walked together and we talked a little bit a little bit more, and then got down to the subway, and he's like, let me just make sure, and he, so he asked the guy at the counter, he's like, hey, how do we get to JFK, and the guy said, you got to buy a ticket, he's like, just, you know, it's going to be about $7.85, you can buy it back here, and, and so I was like, hey, man, you're good to go, you can, you can head out now, and he's like, no, nah, I just want to make sure that you get through, I just want to make sure you get it all right, and so went, and I got my Metro card, $7.85, and I was like, all right, I think I know where I'm going. Just got to go downstairs, E-train, take it all the way uptown Jamaica, get off next to last stop and get to the air train. And he's like, all right. And so I said, you can go now. And as I put my card in and pulled it out and I walked through the gates, as I was walking, I looked back and, and he was watching me. The whole time as I walked away, he was waving by. He was watching me to make sure that I got on the right place so that I could get home. As I got on the train, I did all that stuff and I got to the airport. As soon as I sat down at my gate, I got a text Victor said, hey, Pastor Dio, I just want to make sure that you got to the airport. I was like, hey, man, I really appreciate it. You know, thanks for everything. He's like, yeah. And the last thing he wrote was, I just want to make sure that you got home safely. just want to make sure you got home safely. That's our heart as well for all the people around us. I just want to make sure you got home safely. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. Let's pray. Harvest is plentiful, my friends. It's a revival that could be waiting to happen if we would just go and believe that every player wins. You believe that. Who are the people in your life? It doesn't mean that every person you go to is going to accept Jesus. What it does mean is that you never lose when you take that step of faith. And you keep on doing this, keep on doing this, as Galatians 6 says, you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. You will, you will, you will. Somehow and in some way, somewhere and in someone, there will be a harvest. You believe it, brothers and sisters. Let's pray practically. 
Lord Jesus, I want to join the harvest. I want to go to those who are broken and hurting. I want to go. I don't want to just be comfortable in my air jet 787. I want to go so I can help people get home. Let's pray together for a couple moments. Who are those people in your life? Ask for God's anointing. Ask for open doors and take a step of faith. Let's pray together for a moment, a minute or so, and then I'll pray for us. Yeah. Let's pray honestly, earnestly, sincerely. Lord Jesus, I want to I follow you. Let's pray together. not yet put your trust in Jesus Christ as the Savior of your life, the forgiver of your sins. You can do that right now. Say, Jesus, I admit I'm a sinner. I've messed up. I believe that you died in my place, taking away the wrath of God that was deserved from me. I trust in you that when I stand before God in heaven, not because of my righteousness, not because of my works, not because of my obedience, not even because of my faith, but because of Jesus Christ who died for me. He alone, my Savior, my salvation. So make that prayer right now. Jesus, come into my life, save me from my sins, and use me to fill, fulfill my purpose, which is your purpose in this life. Just pray that prayer right now in your heart as well. Father in heaven, thank you for your people. Thank you, as we heard David Platt say earlier today, the church is plan A and there is no plan B. It's us. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are not plentiful. The workers are few. May we hear the voice of Jesus. May we see the eyes of Jesus. May we see the hand of Jesus pointing at each of us saying, you be my hands and feet. You go and rescue the dying, hurting, despondent. Bring the hope of Christ to them. Lord, may we respond saying, yes, here am I, Lord, send me. Harvest is plentiful. May the workers, because of our obedience, grow in number so that the lost might be saved. People would rejoice and Jesus receive glory. We thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name.